Welcome back to the program. When we talk about America's history of segregation, it's not just about race and class, but also about geography. Even as the civil rights movement would begin to take hold in the late 60s and 70s, there were parts of America, particularly the rural South, that were untouched by that progress. Places where slavery was not just a legacy to be overcome, but still in the very fabric of the cultural DNA of place. It is in this landscape that a young boy grows up, prematurely comes of age due to familial sexual abuse, and yet has the strength, courage, and intelligence to make it out, to become a pillar of the New York Times editorial page and a man brave enough to share his sometimes painful story. That man is Charles Blow. He's a New York Times columnist and CNN commentator, a former graphics director of the Times and art director of National Geographic. It is my pleasure to welcome Charles Blow to the program to talk about his memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. Charles Blow, thanks so much for joining us. It's fantastic to be here. Oh, I would only get up this early for you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> that very much. I want to talk first about the sense of place, this rural town in Louisiana that, that you grew up in, because it is a place that it's hard, I think, for contemporary Americans to even get their head around today in some respects. Yes, I mean, it is kind of an out-of-time sort of place. And, and, and Louisiana in general, um, as you kind of alluded to in your introduction, dragged its feet for years uh, uh, just to comply with um, Brown v. Board of Education. So um, schools in my hometown were not um, integrated until the year I was born, which is 1970. Um, and that takes, that, that's shocking to people, uh, particularly people who grew up in cities, uh, in the North and the West. Um, but that was the, that's the nature of the South. And in particular, these small places, um, the, the town is called Gibbsland because it quite literally was Gibbs land. It was uh, a former plantation of a man named Gibbs. And so uh, when, when I think about uh, history, whether it be uh, civil rights movement or the, the Jim Crow era or slavery, it does not feel like those are historical things, but things that are very much alive because I can see the remnants of it um, all around me where I could see them when I was growing up in Louisiana and the stories that people told connected that history very uh, very much to present living. So it never felt like it was you know, uh, something far from me. And was there something in the rural nature of that town and the way it played out that forced young, forced young people to grow up faster in some ways, to become more mature at an earlier age because of what was going on around them? I mean, in some ways, you, there was a certain naivete. I mean, this is before um, uh, the Internet. So you're not kind of uh, virtually connected to the rest of the world. So you, whatever's happening there is, is, is isolated from what's happening in big cities. In another way, though, um, there was a sort of what I call a, a kind of hypersexualization of very young children where um, uh, little, little boys uh, would be peppered with questions about who you're dating and whether you're getting some, which was whether or not you were having sex with someone, uh, and from very, very, very early ages. And in fact, very young children were having sex, and part of that was 
you know, was the, the kind of culture of the place. Another part of it was that it was so rural that all of the parents worked in other uh, neighboring towns that actually had uh, employment. You know, the, the, this place was so small that there was nowhere to work in the town. So uh, between, you know, when you got out of school at 3 o'clock, you still had to wait until your parents could make it back home at 6. So you, for, for about three hours, they were, you're completely ungoverned. <laughs> so you, you can imagine, uh, you know, kids and hormones and no adults in pretty much in the entire town. Uh, and uh, that, that, that doesn't turn out well. Your own story of sexual abuse that begins with your cousin when you were seven years old he was only 14, 15 years old at the time. Yeah, he was a, he was a teenager. Well, I, th- I think it's very important for us to, to, re- um, to understand that sexual abuse, child sexual abuse is not just the Jerry Sandusky-type cases where mm-hmm. it, or to catch a predator, which is what we see on television all the time, where there's an, right. uh, uh, an, uh, an adult um, who preys on t- uh, children, sometimes kind of older teens. Um, but if you look at the data, the, the one age with the most um, uh, predators is 14 years old. It's not even an adult. And although 14 is also the, the one age with the most um, uh, abused children, half of all abused children are under 12. And of that cohort the one age with the most abused children is four years old. So very often, childhood sexual abuse involves an older child taking advantage of a younger child. And I think that we don't always see it that way. And then once we do see it that way, we recognize that that's what's happening, we have to figure out to what degree that child must be treated or punished or how do we deal with that? How do we discuss that with our children? And at seven, in this environment that we've been talking about, what did you understand at that point about sexuality, about sexuality in general? And and as you talk about, being in a rural community in some ways contributed to that understanding. What did you understand about it then? I mean, you understood. I mean, first of all, it's an agrarian uh, society. Um, you we raised animals all the time, and animals are not particularly discreet. <laughs> <laughs> they have sex when they want to have sex. So you, you do understand that, 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 that um, just on the very kind of natural animal um, impulse side, that there, there is sex, and you see it happening all around you in that regard. Um, however, uh, kind of uh, person-to-person sexual activity, I was... Um, naive to it. I mean, I, it's a heteronormative society, so of course you see um, uh, mothers and fathers together, you see people dating, you see uh, even friends dating, um, but, but all that you see of that particular kind of sex, sexual uh, intimacy is kind of kissing and holding of hands and hugging and things. And so that was my, uh, the kind of um, the extent of my knowledge of it. Uh, so uh, to 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 be introduced to something that was more than that was jarring to me. And talk about your initial reaction to it and how you began to process it at, at all. In the moment, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I didn't know. You know I'm a seven-year-old kid and have had to 
understand that I have a seven-year-old kid, and it was it was okay for me not to know what to do at the time. But you know, just didn't even know what the words what words to say mm-hmm. to make this stop. Didn't know what could have precipitated it. You know, was it something that I had done, which is I think a common thing that young, particularly young kids, do is to to wonder if they have done something. Because you know, you think it's such a betrayal, it's such a strange thing. So maybe you you think at least at that at that age, did I do something to make this person behave this way? And um, and 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 what is happening actually? I don't I don't quite understand the, the, the mechanics. I don't understand what's happening in this moment. And and in that moment, my kind of spirit began to cleave from my body, like as if I were looking at what was happening from above it and uh, and having this kind of out-of-body experience um, and, and, and not being able to just to come bring both parts of the spirit and the body back together. One of the things you talk about it is that in addition to, to the sexual abuse itself, that it was this sense of this powerful sense of betrayal of, of trust that that really was so much a part of what you were experiencing. Absolutely, I mean, and in fact, you know, I think uh, I don't use the word abuse. I, maybe I do in the book, but I, I don't, if I do, not very much at all. I called it the betrayal. I mean, that and that was what it was more to me because you know it was not the most aggressive form of abuse. There are many different levels mm-hmm. of abuse, but I just don't think that kids register. It doesn't. It's a. It's a. Um, the, the difference doesn't matter so much for the child. The betrayal is what is most most substantial, and um, and that's what it meant for me that this person who I thought was my friend had betrayed my trust in the worst sort of way, and. And I think that because the abuse was not repeated, I probably, I always believe anyway that I could have dealt with the abuse. I could have contextualized and say, okay, yes, this is a horrible thing. It happened, in, you know, one uh, summer night, but it's over and I can move on with my life. But I wasn't able to do that because the betrayal continued in the form of him deciding that he would then become a bully for me to, I believe, stop me from ever telling anybody about what had happened and to... Um, damage my credibility if I ever told. And that, to me, was an extension of the betrayal, that this person who I had really loved and uh, really looked up to had had done this to me. And in many ways, the bullying that followed, that homophobic bullying that went on, was in many ways more devastating, it felt like. Absolutely more devastating. And I, and I think... And that was, you know, that's part of the reason that, that I began to write the book, not because of uh, the childhood sexual abuse, which is a big thing in and of itself, but, you know, I had, I started to see kids killing themselves because of bullying. And I knew that the bullying can be bigger, at least it was bigger for me than the, than the abuse, and it can be bigger in a child's life because it can be, so oppressive and it can be so um, expansive that there's no space to get away from the bullying. At least with the child sexual abuse, it ha- you know, it's happening in secret and darkness. The bullying is happening in the daylight. Uh, the bullying is happening when you are at school. The bullying is happening when you come home over dinner. I mean, everywhere you are, the bullying is there. 
And if that is the case, you feel like you cannot, there's no space to run, there's nowhere to hide. And that oppression can be too much. And, you know, in 2009, there were two little boys who both hanged themselves. They didn't know each other. They were both 11 years old. They hanged themselves 10, years, 10 days apart from each other. And I thought, I know what that feels like, and that can't happen. That can't repeat itself on my watch. I know what it feels like to feel bullied, and I know what it feels like to feel, have these kind of uh, suicidal ideations. And, but I, you know, I didn't do what they did. I didn't fall through. I kind of walked back from that precipice. But I, you know, they don't always have the language to say this is what was hurting me so much. But as the adult, forty-four-year-old man, I have the language, and I can write this. And suicide was something that you even considered at one point. Would they ask Absolutely. For the next year, like uh, I must have been eight years old, I was going to take a. I mean, and, and it wasn't even. You know, something that I prepared for, I thought about before the moment that I decided that I was going to do it. I was at a, I'd gone to a, a skating rink, and um, we we rarely got to go to the skating rink, so I wasn't going to miss it. But I had a headache, so before I left the house, I uh, put a bottle of aspirin in my jacket pocket, thinking that I would take it to uh, relieve the headache if it came back when I was at the at the skating rink. And, Sure enough, it came back when I was at the skating rink. So I exited the floor, and I was going to take more aspirin. And in that moment, I just decided that without any forethought that I could recall, and without ever even remembering ever saying the word suicide, ever don't even know where it would have come from, don't even, don't know where the eight-year-old would have known, would have found out that pills, enough pills can kill you. But in that moment, I just said, I should do it. And I was going to do it, and it, it, but it was my me questioning, you know, would it hurt, and you know, would I go to hell? You know, a very religious kid, uh, family was very religious. Uh, would my mom cry? And and then one of my mom's songs that she used to sing, we were in a car alone, alone together. She you know, kind of came to me, and and I took that as some sort of sign that this, I that I shouldn't do it, and uh, and and I didn't. The sense of of not doing it, the sense of questioning, of, of not only thinking about the religious aspect, but, but how it would affect your mother, how it would affect other people, the, the sort of intellectual peering inside of it all. Talk a little bit about that as it relates to you and the sense of intelligence that's brought to bear, even in the context of all the pain. Well, I mean, I think I was a very quiet um, inquisitive, uh, contemplative kid, and um, uh, and I th- and, and um, I think that and I like books, and my mom, I, my mom taught me to like newspapers. She'd give me this thing called a mini page, and I saw what books and learning did in her life kind of materially to change her life for the better. Um, and I also liked the escapism of it, the, the magic of transporting oneself to another reality. And um, so that I always knew was my strength, that, that I had all of these questions and that I, that I was consuming these ideas all, all the time. And so I'm... I'm constantly thinking things through uh, and sometimes in some cases I even write in a book I'm overthinking things and in, in, in all the time 
which I uh, then think is a is a problem that that I that you know something that should have a yes no answer. They don't always have yes or no answers mm-hmm. for me because my brain is spinning this these questions out and, and you know there's 20 questions before an answer comes and I constantly say oh Charles you're overthinking just say something um, but I, you know I, I later realized that that is my gift um, and and I embrace this idea that that I have a million questions and I think about things on many different levels and and I think that that is part of what In writing this memoir, in looking back on on this experience that we've been talking about and other experiences, talk about the sense of looking back on the actions, the thoughts, the ideas of a seven, eight-year-old boy through the lens of a 40-plus-year-old man and putting that in the context of what you understand about your own sexuality today. Well, what I try to do, you know, from a literary perspective, is to stay in the moment of the boy. So to to, to limit the influence of the forty four year old on the on the seven eight year old, um, and to write uh, the story uh, contemporaneously, so that the seven year old is speaking when I am seven years old, um, and you know. Part of that was a, a, quite a bit of emotional archaeology of um, going back to places where I had been and you know, the house where I grew up was still standing at the time. It's no longer standing now, but I would go into the room. It's empty. It was empty then, and it was still painted the same colors and the room where I slept and the, the, the curtains were still there. And I would just sit there on the floor and try to, my best to remember how I felt uh, in particular moments that I wanted to write about and to stay in that moment and to do and also to describe um, uh, things only using the language that I would have known at the time only you know if, if you're using metaphor that you only use references that would have existed in the child in the, in the world of that child um, uh, so it's a, a lot of a lot of natural references to trees and rain and fire and dirt um, and and plants and pets so um, so trying to keep it in that context and and part and, and part of that you know that comes to have a, a pro, the pros and cons which is you know one of the um, the pros is that you do feel transported to that reality with the child one of the cons is that the things that a child thinks are not always accurate, although they are feeling it very acutely at the time. For instance, um, the child, I think children often do this, is that um, you know, if you're a victim of childhood sexual abuse, you're kind of a pre-sexual being, depending on the age you are. And so that is your first introduction to any sort of sex. And so it, uh, it particularly in my case, you braid together the idea of abuse and attraction, uh, abuse and identity, that you believe that you know any change, any change in identity or any difference in identity is the direct result of the abuse, um, and the adult me knows you know that that's you know that's a reactionary thing that's not really the way it works, but I had to to write it as the child experienced it, which is that. He, 
I believe as a kid that that was true. And you spend the rest of your life trying to unbraid those two and realize that, you know, child sexual abuse doesn't necessarily make children different in terms of identity, but, you know, it's very likely that children who are going to identify as different in some way are more likely to be victims of childhood sexual abuse. And, and, and you know, you know, towards the end of the book, I uh, put in the, the adult reckoning with that and, and, and understanding that, you know, the abuser hadn't done this, that this was, I was either predisposed or predetermined to be whoever I was going to be anyway, um, and that that person doesn't have that sort of power over my life uh, or that sort of agency over my uh, fate. And also that there are negative effects of child sexual abuse, but uh, difference in identity is not a negative. And it is, you know, it's a beautiful part of you. And you don't have to come to that as some sort of woeful acquiescence of, of acceptance, but you, you can come to that as a kind of beautiful embrace of who you were always meant to be. And, and, and that is kind of more of a mature adult reckoning with that. But you know, in the writing, I had to stay in the kid, and the kid was very much believing that it was negative and that it, um, that it was a result of abuse. And in fact, the penultimate example of trying to free yourself from that power is when you go as a young adult to try and to kill your cousin and decide that that's not something you're going to do. Right. I mean, that's that's the fork in the road. Um, you, you either, you, you you know, and for me, for the you know, the, me therefore the protagonist in this case because it's a memoir. Um, how strongly do you believe this? And you, you know, either you believe it to be true, and the only uh, uh, rectification is is homicidal, or you have to let this go. You have to you have to let it go. In, in terms of you can't keep living your life through the eyes of a seven year old child. You have to let it go. And in terms of you have to forgive, in the broadest sense. Uh, uh, this act, not that you're forgetting, not that you think that it's uh, not consequential to your life, but you have to, you have to release it um, in order to embrace yourself. You have to release it in order to start, you have to stop hating this person so that you can start loving yourself because the hate can't coexist with the love. There is not enough space in the heart for love and hate to coexist. And so I had to release the hate for him in order to start loving myself. And I also had to start the process of unbraiding the idea that he had somehow caused a negative to, to release, to say, being different, having the possibility, the capacity for attraction to not only women but also to men was not a negative thing. That, 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 it, was, that it was just me and I liked me and uh, that was part of the beauty of me. Uh, and that process of now walking back uh, that relationship between those two things. And having freed yourself of that at a younger age, how difficult was it to go back and write this memoir and to revisit all of this 
over again. It actually, I think, made it easier for me. I don't know if I could have written this book, you know, at 20, in my 20s. I think it may have been too fresh. Uh, the, the fact that I had so much distance between, the fact that, you know, this, these memories are, uh, even the most mis- recent memories in the book are 20 years old, gave me some sort of uh, distance and dispassion in which that I, that I could write about it in a sober way and, and that my passions didn't overtake the narrative. I, I actually think it's, it was helpful. New York Times columnist Charles Blow, his memoir is Fire Shut Up in My Bones. Charles, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. Now you, have, now you owe me coffee. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a break. I'll be right back.